So surprisingly, this particular scripture that I read today does not come up in the lectionary. <laughs> so it's pretty likely that you've never heard it preached before. It's one of those scriptures that comes up in Deuteronomy that lays out one of the many endless rules that the Israelites must follow in order to understand what it means to be holy and in order to maintain a holy camp, all for the purpose of being able to host the one who is most holy, because they believed that if their camp wasn't holy, then God would not be able to remain with them there. It may also surprise you to know that during the 1880s, the scripture that we read from Deuteronomy was actually preached a lot. There was something unfolding, a shift that was happening in society that the church was wrestling with. Someone had invented indoor plumbing. And many preachers were calling on this scripture preaching from this text to make an argument for why they should not install plumbing in their church. So there were many very faithful men who were pounding the pulpit and proclaiming, nothing indecent should happen within this camp. Nothing indecent should happen within the church. You need to relieve yourselves outside. Otherwise, God will become unhappy with us. God won't remain in this place. There were a lot of people that were real excited about getting plumbing in their homes. <laughs> I know my grandmother, for one, she told me lots of stories about having to use outhouses. But the transition for the church was a hard one. Many of them struggled because they were of the mindset. And actually, did you know that there are some churches even today that don't have indoor plumbing? Because they ascribe to the mindset that, help me out here, Jemima, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. This is the third week of our five-week sermon series, Half Truths, based on Adam Hamilton's work. And God said it, I believe it, that settles it, is our half-truth for this week. Now for me, this particular half-truth is quite personal. It's one that still makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. And it's one that kept me outside the walls of the church for many, many years. And I was one of those people that really wanted in. It's kind of a weird kid. My grandmother taught me. I've told you about my grandmother before. She was a very faithful woman. She was very gentle and kind and funny. Do anything in the world for you. Highly intelligent. She had one of those senses of humor that would kind of creep up on you. You didn't expect it, but every now and then she was hilarious. She would tell me that God created all of us and loves everybody unconditionally. She'd tell me about how there wasn't anything you could do. There's nothing you could do, Tracy, that would cause God to not love you. She would talk about how God was always forgiving always reaching out. More than anything else in the world, God desired love and companionship with all of God's people. That's what she believed. Well, grandmother, what about Jewish people? Tracy, the way I see it, we're all trying to get to the same place. 
Yeah, but grandmother, what about Muslims? What about Buddhists? Tracy, God made them all. God loves them all. God's not going to let go of any of them. But then I would go to church, and I would hear things like, um, have you accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? And I'd say, well, I think so. I mean, I guess. How do I know for sure? And then oftentimes I would be handed one of those tracts, maybe you've seen them, that has the image of the great chasm, and God's on one side and we're on the other, and then there's a cross that spans the gap. And they would explain, well, you know, we're all separated from God because of the sin that we commit. And every one of us is a sinner. It's right there in the Bible, right there in Romans 3.23. And not only that, but the penalty of sin, it's death. If you're not forgiven, you'll be eternally separated from God in hell. And rumor has it, it's hot there. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. But thank God, Jesus died on a cross to pay the penalty for all of your sins. It says so in Romans 5.10. And in Romans 10.9, thank goodness. Jesus says, if you confess your sins with your mouth, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. That, for me, was terrifying. That understanding of who God was scared me to death, and it was completely inconsistent with who my grandmother had told me God was. But because I was so scared, I would land straight on my knees, and I would say whatever they told me to say. I would pray the prayer that they told me to pray, and I would be saved. Honestly, I'm not sure how many times I got saved over the years. It was pretty hard because in North Carolina in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, in the Bible Belt, I was surrounded by fundamentalist Christianity. I regularly saw Jim and Tammy Faye Baker and Jerry Falwell on television, and every preacher that I talked with personally ascribed to a literal and inerrant view of Scripture. And that's really what they mean when they say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I mean... If God, hypothetically speaking, suddenly appeared right here in this room in physical form and there was absolutely no doubt that it was God, and then God revealed some revelatory truth to all of us, I don't know about y'all, but that would certainly settle it for me. But the problem is, when people say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it, what they really mean is the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. And there are some people who go on to say, Jemima, give me this slide, God said it, that settles it, whether you believe it or not. This view of Scripture holds that the words that we read in the Bible are a direct and accurate account of exactly what God has said as if God dictated every single word to a variety of scribes. And there's absolutely no accounting for the fact that the Bible was originally written in very ancient languages that we have only, relatively speaking, 
recently translated into English. And at least one of those ancient languages is a dead language. We're not even sure exactly how to translate some of those ancient words into English. God said it, I believe it, that settles it, is a literal and an errant view of Scripture. I personally find that problematic. I mean, for me, the Bible is a sacred text. And that's one of the things that this particular half-truth is trying to get at. It's making the claim that Scripture is authoritative. It has authority in our lives. We need to listen to it. We need to learn from it. And I agree with that. I mean, I read the Bible regularly. My Bible, like Megan's, is tattered and pages are bent. There's words written in it, stuff highlighted. I read my Bible almost daily. I study it. If something doesn't make sense to me, I dig into it. And it shapes almost every aspect, probably every aspect of my life. I'm not sure that there's much I do that's not in some way, shape, or form shaped by what the Bible has to say to me. It shaped who I am, how I live, how I preach, how I teach, how I minister to people, how I serve others in this world, how I parent. It is sacred. And with me, it's the ultimate authority in my life, but I don't approach it as literal and inerrant. In fact, that approach, as I said earlier, kept me out of the church for a long time. That particular approach to the Bible made it impossible for me to claim Scripture as my own because the Bible said a lot of things in there that were troublesome for me, in particular things about women. 1 Timothy and 1 Peter, they say things like, wear modest clothes, simple hair, no jewelry. (laughs) 1 Corinthians, women, be silent in church. That's not working out for me so well. (laughs) And if you have any questions, ask your husbands at home, in private. Yeah, James knows that doesn't work very well either. (laughs) 1 Corinthians 11, women, if you're praying or prophesying, you need to have your head covered. Either that or you need to shave your head. 1 Timothy 2, let a woman learn in silence and with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. I had the great privilege of leading this men's Bible study, for five years. It was one of the most amazing experiences of my ministry. And I'll tell you something. It was extremely healing, because after being told for years and years that as a woman, I had no place teaching or preaching or speaking openly about my faith in a setting where there were men present, These men helped to heal a part of me that had been wounded by that theology. So if you're of a mindset that God said it, I believe it, that settles it, y'all need to drag me out in the parking lot right now and stone me to death. (laughs) 
truth is, as you know, there are some churches who, because of their literal and inerrant approach to Scripture, they don't allow women to preach. They don't allow women to teach men. Most of them don't actually use head coverings. I had a good friend who lived down the street from me in San Antonio, and she ascribed to a literal and inerrant view of Scripture, but she didn't wear a covering on her head, and I wondered about that. I asked her, how come you don't cover your head? She said, well, metaphorically, my husband is my cover. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I mean, the truth is that even those who claim to have a literal and inerrant view of Scripture interpret or disregard some portions of Scripture. And in addition to the ways in which this particular understanding of Scripture can harm women, it can be harmful to many different populations. In the 1840s, 50s, and 60s, a literal approach to Scripture by preachers argued that slavery was a part of God's good social order. There are over 200 verses in Scripture that regulate the practice of slavery. I mean, if there's that many references in Scripture about how to regulate slavery, surely it's a good thing, right? And yet there's that whole big story about how God delivered the Israelite slaves from Egypt. In the mid-19th century, there were a lot of slave owners who, if nothing else, could quote Luke 12.47 that says, That slave who knew what his master wanted but did not prepare himself or do what was wanted will receive a severe beating. If you haven't seen it, watch the movie, 12 Years a Slave. There's a horrifying example of this in there. When Jesus talked about slaves, he wasn't endorsing the practice. He was trying to make a point, and he was speaking within a particular context. If we conclude from the fact that because there are hundreds of passages regarding slaves in the Bible that slavery is a good and acceptable enterprise, we completely miss the thrust of an overwhelming number of other passages in Scripture that talk about things like justice and mercy and love. We lose sight of a God who we know to be one who comes to liberate us. For me, a literal and inerrant approach to Scripture oversimplifies its content And it causes real harm. And if it's taken to its extreme, it even becomes absurd. For example, if we interpret Scripture literally, then every single one of us needs to go home and burn all of the clothing in our closet that has multiple blends of fabric mixed together. Any kind of blended fabric. You need to rethink your gardens because if you plant tomatoes and corn or if you put lettuce and cucumbers side by side, then you're violating God's law. I like to eat shrimp. I like to go out and have shrimp and a baked potato with butter and sour cream and bacon. That is not allowed. Men, if you have a beard, by no means trim it. You need to let it just grow as it will. And kids, <laughs> that's one you wish would keep, right? And kids, be careful about those sassy mouths. 
Don't be rebellious towards your parents. In particular, do not curse them or strike them because the penalty is death. (laughs) Those of you who clean house or get your yard work done on Saturdays, that's a no-no. Saturdays is the Sabbath, and if you violate the Sabbath, the penalty there is also death. Some people want to say, well, you know, all those laws and rules, they were specific to the covenant with God that happened, that predated the advent of Jesus. But Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew 5 that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. All bets are not off just because Jesus hit the scene. It is interesting, however, to watch and listen to Jesus as he teaches and preaches because he most definitely did not ascribe to a God said it, I believe it, that settles it theology. He was constantly interpreting Scripture. He was constantly speaking about Scripture within its context. He, was, uh, he would preach Scripture in terms of how it related to his current specific application. For example... When it came to Sabbath laws, Jesus had a very liberal interpretation of that. He was always doing things on the Sabbath that he shouldn't have been doing. Moses, out in the wilderness, when a man was caught on the Sabbath picking up sticks, he executed him. Jesus, on the other hand, would heal people on on the Sabbath. He would pick grain on the Sabbath. And then he makes this stunning claim in Mark 2 where he says, the Sabbath was created for humans. Humans weren't created for the Sabbath. Then again, when it came to divorce, Jesus landed on the more conservative side than Moses. In Matthew 19, the Pharisees are arguing and they're asking, why did Moses say that we could give our wives a certificate of divorce? Because, Jesus says, you're also heart of heart. God said when two people are joined together, they are one flesh and they should not be pulled apart. I'm telling you, if you divorce your wife for any reason other than unfaithfulness, and you marry another woman, well then you're committing adultery. The reason he took such a strong stance on this was because men in his day and time had begun to take divorce very casually. They would discard their wives without a whole lot of thought if they decided there was another woman that they wanted. And it left the woman who they had discarded with no legal standing. They were suddenly left on the margins. They had no way to support themselves. And if another man wanted to marry them, they couldn't unless they wanted to be... uh, unless they wanted to be... uh, said to have committed adultery. So Moses was issuing certificates of divorce to help these women have some social standing. And yet, when Jesus encounters the adulterous woman, and when he encounters the woman at the well, the one who's been married five times, Jesus led with mercy and grace. He didn't condemn those women He didn't judge them. Jesus' ministry with sinners and tax collectors demonstrated a more liberal approach to Scripture. I mean, he hung out with those who were considered to be unclean. Those who Scripture said we should distance ourselves from. 
And if we look at the example of Jesus' apostles, they also wrestled with Scripture. They didn't use a God-said-it, I-believe-it-that-settles-it approach. In particular, as the gospel became more fully offered to those who were not Jewish, as it became more fully offered to Gentiles, they had to rethink Scripture's meaning as it applied to these new people who wanted to follow Christ. Jews of several different viewpoints came together in Jerusalem for a council to discuss and debate whether or not they were going to let Gentiles become Christians without first becoming Jewish. They wanted to know, well, should a Gentile man be circumcised like Jews are required to do before they can become Christian? They debated to what extent new followers would have to follow Jewish laws about what to eat and what to wear and how to live. Ultimately, they decided to set aside the most binding portions of Scripture so that they could be more inclusive of all people in the Christian movement. The truth is, we all interpret Scripture. We don't live with a God-said-it, I-believe-it-that-settles-it approach. I certainly don't or I wouldn't be standing here every Sunday preaching. I would have a plain baked potato, and I would not eat shrimp. From my point of view, the only definitive word of God is Jesus Christ. For those of us who say we are Christian, Jesus Christ is the fullest revelation of God we've experienced so far. So when I wrestle with Scripture, I turn to Jesus and I look at His life, His ministry, His death and resurrection, and I ask, does my understanding of this Scripture align with who I know God to be in Jesus Christ? If something's off, I keep digging. I keep praying. I check out the historical and cultural context. I wonder about the person who wrote this scripture. Who were they writing to? When? Why? What theological point were they trying to make? The Bible was written by a lot of different people over a long period of time for a variety of communities and for very different purposes. Some books of the Bible were written by multiple authors. The first four books, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy... Some ascribe all of those to Moses, but in Deuteronomy, Moses dies. Scholars have determined that they were written by many sources, at least four, all of which have distinct approaches, and the books came together over a long period of time until finally one redactor drew it all together to speak a word of grace into the lives of the Israelites who had just returned from the Babylonian exile. We talk a lot about the inspired Word of God. The word inspired is only used in relationship to Scripture once in the Bible. It's in 2 Timothy, where it says, Every Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for training character, so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. This particular scripture would have only been referring to Old Testament scripture because the Gospels and the New Testament had not yet been written. 
the author of this scripture was likely arguing for the authority of all of the writings that were currently in circulation, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, because there were some in the Jewish faith that only believed the Torah to be authoritative. And the word that's used there that we've translated in this translation to say inspired by God is theonustos. It's the only occurrence of this particular word in the Bible, and there's no instance of it that scholars have been able to find yet in other ancient literature. So they think that the person who wrote this made that word up to speak to the idea that the word was breathed by God, that God's Spirit somehow shapes and resides in and continues to help us interpret, even today, the words that we find in Scripture. The point is, it's useful because God is present. Adam Hamilton proposes that we should think about this in terms of We should think about Scripture like this. God influenced it. I read, study, and sometimes wrestle with it. And as I interpret it in the light of Jesus Christ, I hear God speak through it, and I seek to live its words as best I can. That works for me. After chasing this book and wrestling with its meaning for over 30 years, I finally found a church that took an approach to Scripture that was not literal and inerrant, an approach that I could understand, an approach where I was finally able to claim Scripture for myself. And it was only then that I truly felt saved. Not by some formulaic prayer based on a literal interpretation of Scripture, but saved by the living breathing, everlasting, always evolving Word of God. Amen.